Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Copper Hills, and I'm so glad to welcome you this morning. I'm glad to welcome you at home as well, wherever you are, if you really are at home or uh, someplace around the world. We have people that tune in from all over the place, but welcome to you. We'd love to have you come back and be part of the gathering in the house. Would encourage you to come at 8.30 or 11.30 (laughs) as uh, the 10 o'clock service is reaching capacity, which is a wonderful thing as well. So, uh, yeah, sure. All right, so the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this amazing story of this orphan girl 2,500 years ago who becomes queen of Persia. Her name is Esther. And we've been looking at her from a very unique point of view, I think, and that is she reaches a place in her life where she needs to make a really big decision. It's a decision that has uh, high potential outcomes, but it carries with it a really significant risk to her personally, like her life. And so we've been thinking through with her going to school on her experience of how she makes this kind of critical decision and what could we learn from it as we make decisions in life as well. So to really quickly catch you up, take you back 2,500 years ago to the empire of Persia where a small-minded, big-ego king by the name of Xerxes is in charge. And uh, at some point, his, uh, he's ticked off at his wife, the queen, because uh, she won't stand for being objectified uh, by her, for her beauty and so on. And so she refuses to show up at an event the king is doing, and so he divorces her. <laughs> what a crazy idea that is, right? Well, it is. He does it. And uh, then he gets a little lonesome, and he decides to do what ABC has picked up on and uh, do the bachelor thing. He does a national beauty contest. He thinks that's a good way to romance someone and find a wife for life. Uh, and uh, he discovers the main character of our story, Esther Hadassah. She's a Jew living in Susa, the capital city. And uh, he gives her the final rose in the final episode and picks her to be his wife. So Esther gives up her Jewish identity to protect herself because being Jewish was not popular, not a good thing, and rises to the position of queen. And then the story changes as the antagonist in the story shows up, a guy by the name of Haman or Haman, and uh, he has a hate on for Jewish people. And he convinces Xerxes to, uh, to write this national law that at a certain point, 11 months down the road, every Jew in the nation is going to get wiped out. It's crazy. And uh, somehow he thinks that's a good idea. He does it, signs on for it. And uh, then we are introduced to somebody by the name of Mordecai, who is the uh, cousin of Esther who raised her. See, she was an orphan girl. Her parents died, and Mordecai raises her to be a young woman in, uh, in the nation. And uh, wouldn't you know it, Esther gets picked for this, and she's in the kingdom Mordecai becomes aware of this edict where his fellow compatriots are going to be wiped out, and he realizes Esther is the answer. She's the one that can turn this around. She's the one that can go to the king. She's the one that can maybe fix this and save his nation and his people, and it turns out her people. Uh, He goes to her, makes this plea with her, and she turns around and goes, hold on just a second, buddy. You understand the risk involved here. This is not just a simple matter of setting up an Outlook appointment with him and showing up. No, 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 no. There is a law that if I go in and I'm not invited, he can take my life. He can kill me. And uh, it's happened kind of before, not death, but he divorced his wife. And you're asking me to go in and say, uh, if he, first of all, will take me and see me, you're asking me to tell him that I don't like the way he's doing his king job. I don't think that's good. Not a good idea. 
So she hesitates, send a note back to Mordecai, which Mordecai replies with this. When Esther's words were reported to him, he sent back this answer, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family, father's family, will perish. And who knows, Esther, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And then we just stopped it. We didn't finish it. We don't actually know how it ends. We don't know what she decided, right? None of us in the room know this. None of us are familiar. Somebody last week stopped me and said, I just want to Google to find out what happened. But I'm going to resist and I'm going to come back. It's amazing to me the number of people who have not heard this story and don't know how it ends. So you're on the like, knife's edge right now. What's she going to do? Is she going to look at this invitation again from Mordecai, this challenge, and go, I'm in. <laughs> We're going to go for it. Or does she stand back and go, okay, pause. Just, just hold on a second. Uh, let's maybe figure out another method. Maybe if we just delay for a while, that rescue help will come from someplace else. Maybe it will. And maybe, maybe I don't have to be the one that like, takes the, the chance. Let's just wait for a little bit. We've got some time. Or maybe she thinks this, I'm just going cold. I'm going to ghost Mordecai and just leave it at that. And I'll be protected and I'll be safe. And it'll be, what, so what's she going to do, right? Big decision. Well, this is what she does. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. In other words, Mordecai, this is the story. Uh, get together every Jewish person in Susa and abstain from eating and drinking for a three-day period. Okay? Can you do that? And then my attendants and myself, my girls in the palace, we're going to do the same thing. We're not going to eat or drink for three days. Right? That's going to work. What, really? Like, what's she doing? Oh, this is what she's doing. She's, she's trying to figure out because in Jewish tradition, as it is in ours, fasting never just was done by itself. Prayer was always part of it. You didn't just abstain from food for no reason. Prayer accompanied it. Biblically, when you think about fasting, those two are bracketed together. I get it. What she's doing is she's taking three days, her attendants and every Jew in Susa, and they're going to go to God with this. That's a good thing. Remember one of the lessons Mordecai taught her, start every decision with God. Everyone, begin with him. Not partway through, not when you wreck it, not when it's a disaster, at the front end. She's learned the lesson, right? She is going to go to God and go, what do we do? What's the next step? Should I go? Should I not go? Should I delay? Should I wait? What should we do, right? That's what she's doing. No, it's not what she's doing. Because here's the rest of the sentence. When this is done, that fasting, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She has already made her decision. She's going. She's going in. She's going to take the risk. Whatever happens to me, happens to me. This is not, this three-day fast is not about helping her make the decision. Not at all. She's made the decision. So why are we doing this then? What's the point? Well, in Esther's day, as it is in our day, Sometimes 
when we get into a really bad spot and the clock is ticking and we have to make the decision, we go to God and ask him that the results would end up to be what we want them to be. Oh, I guess I'm the only one that does that, huh? It's a way to coerce God. It's a way to encourage him. It's a way to get him on our side. It's a way to convince him that we've got a really good perspective on this. Or it's just a way to say, I really need this. I really need you to answer this in this way. And just so you know I'm serious, God, I'm going to up my religious practice. I'm going to start going to church regularly. I'm going to read my Bible a little more. I'm going to you know, pray more than just thanks for the food. I'm going to up my religious activity because I'll bet that impresses you. And I'll bet you look at that and go, he's really serious. She really means it. I didn't know that. Okay, I'll do that then because you really mean it. Or we go to him and go, um... If you, if you knew what was the really best decision here, uh, then you would do that. And if I do some religious practice, you're going to have sympathy or empathy with me. And you're going to, the whole thing is I want to get results. I want him to do what I want him to do. And that's why I fast. Now, there is some dimension of that. However, in Hebrew tradition, if you go back, fasting was not like something Esther initiated. It had been part of the Jewish religious, spiritual interaction with God. But do you know, just as it is in the New Testament, it was in the Old Testament, fasting and abstaining from food and praying was not primarily to get God to do something. It was confessionary. It was about being humble and contrite and transparent with God. It's the, you would come to God this way and go, God, uh, I want you to be the focus of my world and the focus of my life. And there are some ways and some areas that you haven't been, and I want to confess that to you. But I'm coming to you not so that when I'm transparent and confess, you, you do what I ask you to do. No, I'm coming because I need you in my world, in my life, regardless of how this all turns out. I need you in my life. I need you to not just guide me and give me courage, <clears throat> but to live life with me. I need to take my life from my life being about me to my life being about you to my life with you. So I'm not coming to you asking you for the end result. And the way Esther chooses to do it, as had been done many times, was to tell her body, you don't get what you want. Do you know what one of the dominant decision-making factors in our world is? Our bodies. They tell us what they want all the time. They're actually never satisfied. There's another meal they want. There's another pleasure they want. There's another part of enjoyment that they want. They're never quiet. And they continue to come back to us over and again. This is where some of the desires that we feel are really natural to us, it's really just us. It's just our humanity. 
It isn't like a God-given desire. It's just our bodies. And we have to learn to differentiate between what is my body just asking because it seems right, looks right, feels right, but God's maybe not in it. How would you discern that? How would you figure that out? Well, I guess you'd have to be close enough to God to actually hear his opinion on it and his view. And this is what the abstaining from food is. It's telling our bodies, you're not in charge. You don't get what you want. You might to some degree, but you're a vehicle for my soul. God's in charge, and I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to have that posture before God that he gets to call the shots, whatever they are. And if I die in the process, I die in the process. But God, you get your way. My body doesn't. That's why the food's... But that idea is not just related to fasting, like reducing quantities of food or stopping altogether, but it supplies to things like why we would do times of solitude and quiet and why we would be alone with God and why we would have times of silence where we're just quiet with him. It's the same motive. It's the same idea. It's this idea of saying, God, I am less interested in the results as I am interested in you. You see, we fast for all kinds of reasons. We do. Uh, we fast for bodily health. There's uh, apparently the 16-8 fast and the 5-2 fast and the warrior fast and the whatever else fast. There are intermittent fasts and whole fasts and complete fasts. And then there are spiritual fasts like the Esther fast and the Daniel fast. There's a whole litany of these fasts. There's uh, fasting from media and technology. That's a good one. It is. There's a fast from uh, just the bodily pleasures. Those are good. Except I have found this in my world. Two things. First of all, I typically have a history of doing those kinds of self-denial things to get God to do something for me, to give me an answer to something. It's really about me. In the end, it turns out. The second thing is, they inevitably become competitive for me. I'm so competitive. I go with a six-hour fast. I go, I can do 12. And I can do 24. And I can outlive anybody on this one. It's, it's somehow competitive. And I lose, I lose the reason for it. And the reason has always been with the fast. To say yes to God and say no to my body if my body gets in the way of saying yes to God. Solitude, silence, fasting can be particularly difficult but important to have as part of our lives. I'll tell you a story. Uh, 25 years ago, when my family and I moved to Arizona to start Copper Hills, we took a six-month side trip to California. I know, sad, right? We took a side trip to, to get some additional seminary training. And so uh, I finished up the seminary training, and we were about to move to Arizona. And uh, somebody in passing uh, said, hey, uh, I did a silent retreat some years ago, and it really was really effective in God showing himself to me. And so on a whim, I found this kind of uh, sparse camp up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, booked a week for a silent retreat. Thought it'd be really great because I'm about to start a church. 
And I want God's direction. I want his ideas. I want his strategies and tactics. And what better than to take a concentrated time, pull out my, my journal and my pen and go, all right, God, go. I'm here. I'm going to write all the stuff down that you tell me. And then we're going to make all that stuff happen. It's going to be a glorious experience, God. So see what I'm willing to do, God? Five days alone, quiet with you. Come on. Let's go. So on a Sunday afternoon, my wife drove me up to this camp. There were some rules. The reason my wife drove me is you can't have a car because they're afraid you're going to jet partway through. <laughs> uh, you uh, li- stay in this really, really sparse little postage stamp little cabin. No amenities in it. Um, all the meals. You can have them if you want to. You don't have to, but every meal is a silent meal. That means nobody's talking. That means you can't ask for the ketchup. That means you can't, I'll decline the, you know, the roasted vegetables. You just get what you're given. You sit down in silence with people around your table, and we're all quiet. It's crazy. And so arrived there on a Sunday afternoon, Elfie and I prayed together. She headed down the mountain. She was going to pick me up later Friday afternoon. So I went to my cabin, unpacked my meager belongings, my Bible, my journal, uh, a 700-page book, uh, biography on the life of Billy Graham. That should really get the soul revved, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, a few snacks just in case. I can't go without food because of a chronic stomach thing that I have going and flare up, and so I wanted to protect myself there. And uh, so I'm sitting on the uh, cedar chair out in front of my cabin, uh, and I'm thinking, this is great. No responsibility. Silence. I have three young children, by the way. Silence. Parents, you'll get that. Silence. And uh, I've got my Bible ready to to read some profound things that God's going to share with me, and my journal's ready to go, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is great. I look at my watch, 15 minutes have passed. Oh, I thought that was a little longer than that. Okay. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, "Um, you know, I'm going to go for a walk. So I walked about half a mile into the forest and uh, I found a stream, a brook, a little running brook. It was really beautiful. And so I sat down at the brook and I thought, God, this is my moment with you. This is like picture, postcard. Like, it's beautiful. What do you got for me? And nothing. Looked at my watch, 10 minutes had passed. Good good night. This is a little slower than I anticipated. So I I gotta do something. You know, if God's not talking, I'm gonna go do something. And I see this beaver dam up the creek a little ways. I go over there and I start fiddling around with it, poking with a stick. I'm gonna get that the beaver out of there, right? Well, I discover it's abandoned. There's nobody there. And so I sit down once again and look again. That was another 10 minutes. I don't know if I can do this. I really don't know. But, but I'm committed. Like, I'm in. It's too soon to make a judgment on this, but this is boring. It's a little frustrating for me. So I did a few things, hung around and whatnot, and messed around in the creek, and then I thought, well, you know, the sun's starting to set. I'm going to go back to my cabin. It must be close to dinner. Get to my cabin. Dinner is served at 5 o'clock. I decide to have dinner and see how far I can go without food the rest of the week. And I look at my watch, and it's gone. 
it's in the creek someplace or it's someplace. It's gone. I cannot find it. And I go, oh, no. I am not going to know what time it is throughout the week. Now, for you type Bs, like creatives, and you're, you're thinking, that's a blessing. Type A's? Nope. There's the cross and the watch. Like, it's like a big deal that you don't know what time it is at some point, right? Well, here I am, and I go, I can't go the rest of the week without knowing what time it is and how the day is for I can't. I'm frustrated. Frustrated that this is working out this way. This is not a good start. I hear someone walk past my cabin, and I think, well, it must be dinner time. It's around that time, I think. So I follow him. We go over to the big house where dinner is served, and I get my food. And to me, food is not like a leisure, like pleasure thing. It's a, it's a product to consume. And so five minutes, I'm done my food. Apparently, everybody else around the table thinks it's a slow thing. They're all picking at their food, and they're going slow. And I go, this is silly. And now I'm embarrassed sitting there with an empty plate while everyone's still eating. And I go, oh, this is frustrating. So I just decide to get up and go to my cabin, and that's it for the day. I go, what am I going to do? Now the frustration is rising, and I'm starting to have conversations with God along the lines of why. Why this? I did this out of trust in you. I'm trying to be faithful, God. I'm trying to hear you. I'm trying to get some ideas for this church from you. So I pick up the biography of Billy Graham's life, and I realize before all that long, I'm halfway through the book, and I realize that's not going to last the week. I'm going to be in trouble. This thing's going to be finished early and quick, and then what am I going to do? I figure, oh, i got to get to sleep. So I lay down, turn the light off, and I cannot sleep. I'm agitated, and I'm worried, and I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with God that he wouldn't meet me. I've been so faithful. Give me some answers. Give me some strategies. Give me a vision. Do something, God. Well, I evidently fell asleep at some point, woke up the next morning, didn't want to face the day. It's Monday. There are five days to go yet. So I go, I'm going back to the river or to the creek. So I get to the creek, and I'm messing around, and I'm doing stuff, and I don't know what time it is, and... I am just frustrated, and I think I'm done. I quit. This is not for me. I'm not getting anything out of this. God, you're not around anywhere. I did this to be faithful to you and hear from you. And I thought, I'm just going to march back to the big house, grab the phone, and call Alfie to pick me up. And then I realized I have too big an eagle for that. I will not quit. I will persevere through the end. I managed through the rest of the day, not a good day, barely slept the next night, woke up the next morning, and I go, oh, it's only day three. I'm going out to the creek again. And with all the frustration, anger in my heart, I walked out to the creek. And then I don't know when it happened. I don't know if it happened all at once or it just happened over time. But my world slowed down suddenly. I can't explain it other than that. I started to hear things I hadn't heard up to that point. The brook was making a sound as it was rolling. I didn't know that. I didn't know how complex that beaver dam was. I didn't know how beautiful the trees were. I couldn't differentiate the sounds of birds, and suddenly I was able to do that. And then in a moment of time, I realized I'm all alone. There's nobody around. 
I'm by myself. And then I have this thought. Maybe God, maybe just a thought. But it's a clear, distinct thought. So are you ready for me now? Are you ready for me now? Hmm. Those emotions still come up. Um, and I click, yes. Yes, I'm ready for you. And God, I don't really care whether you give me a vision or strategy or that doesn't. I don't know why that doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter anymore. Could, could we just play in the creek together? And for the next two and a half days, like a little boy with his dad, I don't know how else to describe it, God and I played in the forest. We walked and we talked together. I think I heard him. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't give me any strategy. He didn't give me some vision for something. He didn't give me tactics to do. Because long before he wanted to do that, he wanted to give himself. He wanted me to know him, to be with him, that I could actually enjoy him, that he wasn't distant someplace, but he was there. He was present. I have found two things in my life, maybe you too, that have had just significant power informing me. One is catastrophe and crisis. Getting to the end of myself, facing a problem I can't handle, a sadness, a sorrow, a difficulty, and through that, God's formed me. And then the second way is when I have taken time alone with him. 25 years ago, I did five days. I've done varying lengths of time along the way. Uh, every day, there's a part of my day that's just Jesus and me, and I arrange my calendar around it. It's not because I'm heroic in any way. I am desperate. I am desperate for him. And I just know that when I give him my attention, he actually meets me there, and he has something to share with me. Does he help with decisions? You bet he does. But more times than not, it's just him. And I don't know how to describe that. I've had the hardest time as a pastor to try to describe that to people because it seems ethereal. It seems distant. It seems like that might be exclusively for somebody other than who we know. This is, this is for all of us. But the question will be, will we do what Esther did? Will we go to the people around us and go, time out. I need three days alone with God. That's what I need. Not because I need a decision. I've already made that decision, as Esther would say. I just needed him. I needed, I needed to, to know, and I needed him to know, that when I went in to see Xerxes, I wasn't going there because of my beauty or my charm or my charisma or my position. I was going because he's going with me. And God, if you're going with me, I guess if I die, I die. Isn't that a great way to live? To, like, to live dead? It's an amazing way to live. And this is what I have discovered in my own walk. So do you do that? Do you take those times? It isn't necessarily three days like Esther did or five days. It, it's, it's some intentional time. Would three days be good? Yeah, I'd be all for that. Five days, you bet to take some vacation time to do that, to be intentional, to block some time out. You bet. But maybe that's not the starting point. 
Maybe the starting point is to say, God, uh, this week, I'm going to find out where my best time of the day is, where my biorhythms are best, if it's evening, if it's afternoon, or it's morning, and I'm going to block out some time. I'm going to give you two hours, going to give you an hour, and I'm going to go for a walk with you, walk with you in the desert, walk with you in the park next to my office, whatever it would be. That's your time with me, and I don't expect you to inform me, to teach me, to coach me, to give me some answer. I'm not even going to ask you for stuff. But I am going to try to put myself in a place where I'm with you. Would you do that? Would you be willing to intentionally set aside that time and take the risk? I know it's a risk. Take the risk that he indeed will meet you there and reveal something of himself. Esther has learned this. Start with God in the decision. All the things that we experience, good, bad, or otherwise, have led us to this point. God's been involved whether we saw him or not. And then, when we take time with him, he meets us there. So what decision did Esther make? Still don't know, right? It's a feel-good story. It's a wonderful story. She goes into the king. He grants, them, grants her his favor. She saves her people Haman, the enemy, is put aside and uh, the edict is changed. The Jewish people are saved. And every year today, still today, all these many thousands of years later, they celebrate Purim. And it's a celebration of what God did through Esther. Critical to what he did was that three days that she was with him. Can I just ask you, would you be willing to intentionally take a risk and do that with Jesus? I think he'll meet you and show you who he is. Now, Jesus, somehow or other in your own life, as the God incarnate God-man, you reasoned and thought it was important for you to be alone with your father. We read over and again how you took time, how you would pray through long periods of time, how you would go away by yourself, and you're the God of the universe. And yet you, you felt you needed to do that. I wonder, Jesus, if it isn't because on that last night of your life, as you were faced with what you were faced with, I wonder if those times alone with you didn't give you the ability and the courage to go, Father, if you would take this away, that would be great. But if I die, I die. Your will be done, not mine. Jesus, does that happen apart from spending time with you to experience the wonder of who you are? Might we be among those who follow your lead and do what you do so that we can experience what you experience, which is you? To that end, Jesus, we'll be really grateful and we'll say thank you again. Amen.